Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Ryan Weibel, who is the director of Stephen Sondheim's musical Saturday Night, a musical not many people have heard of, at 42nd Street Moon, that's the gateway, formerly the Eureka Theater in San Francisco, and that's March 28th to April 15th. Ryan Weibel is the adjunct professor of theater at Diablo College and worked as a dramaturge on Assassins, which we'll talk about. Let's start here by talking a little bit about Saturday Night. What prompted 42nd Street Moon to choose this show? This musical really sort of perfectly fits into the wheelhouse of 42nd Street Moon's mission, which is to do rarely produced musicals by well-known American composers of the 20th century. I know that 42nd Street Moon, back in the old days of Greg McKillen, did a lot of shows that were staged readings. Is this an actual production? Yes, so it's shifted over the last few years. It's also under new leadership with the co-executive directors, Daniel Thomas and Darren A.C. Carollo. It has shifted away from the sort of concert stage productions to full-fledged theatrical productions, which this one will be. Set, lighting, costume design, no scripts in hands, uh, completely memorized. So what you would anticipate going to any theater. This particular show, Saturday Night, I interviewed Stephen Sondheim a couple of times several years ago, and we didn't really talk about this show, mainly because he wrote it when he was like 22, 23 years old. I know the history, but why don't you talk a little bit about how this show came to be originally, going way back to how he found Lemuel Ayers, who was going to be the producer and the man putting up the money for the Broadway production. So this piece in particular was intended to be in the 55, summer 55 Broadway season and uh, unfortunately never quite made it because the producer, as you mentioned, passed away and uh, they opted to at that time shelf the production. The next time it was considered for reproduction, Julie Stein, after working with Sondheim on Gypsy, pitched the notion of doing the show again. And at the time, Sondheim felt like it was... In his past, creatively, it was something that was first production and wasn't really interested in revisiting that. So it didn't happen. It got scrapped and didn't get a production until 1996. Do we know how Ayers and Sondheim met? To be honest, I don't know how they met. I just know of their working relationship and what happened as a result of their collaboration on this piece in response to, which I think you are aware, is based off of the play The Front Porch and Flatbush, written by the Epstein brothers. So I only know really of what happened to this piece after the fact, not as much about what happened prior. Did the Epstein brothers work on the libretto as well? They were part of that process as well, yeah. Yeah, the Epstein brothers, Philip and Julius Epstein, mostly known for having written the screenplay for Casablanca, and Philip's grandson, Theo Epstein, is the general manager of the Chicago Cubs and was the general manager when the Boston Red Sox won their first World Series. They're also different from most baseball people in that Theo Epstein's a liberal, and his grandfather and, I guess, great-uncle 
were on the left as well. Well, it's funny. I was just reading about the twins and their relationship with Jack Warner and how much they had sort of a love-hate relationship. And apparently he ultimately reported them to the House Un-American Activities Committee. And I guess they never got quite as far as uh, actually being interviewed. But on a survey, they asked if they had worked for any subversive organizations. And their response was, yes, Warner Brothers, (laughs) uh, which I think is a very interesting tidbit. So the show kind of died and disappeared, though I believe the song Pour the Sport found its way into Marry Me a Little, one of those shows, I think. And then it came back in two productions. I believe in uh, there was a production in England and then an off-Broadway production, both of which got uh, CDs. You were familiar with the CDs, of course. Correct. 96 was the first production in London. It then was a professional production also in London in 97. The U.S. premiere was in Chicago in 99 by Pegasus Players, at which point the two songs Delighted, I'm Sure, and Montana Chem were added. And then the New York premiere was Second Stage in 2000, directed by Kathleen Marshall. But it never hit Broadway. Never Broadway. Never San Francisco. It's the first time. What were the reviews like? Mixed. I've gone back and looked at some of the reviews, and I think, as is often the case with Sondheim, I feel like reviews tend to be mixed. He tends to be one of the types of composers that you either have a tremendous love affair with or it's just not your particular bag. I happen to be a tremendous Sondheim fan, so uh, I love this piece, along with many others. The title song, Saturday Night, which is my favorite song from the show, has the lyrical genius of Sondheim at 23. The rest of the show, not quite up to it, I don't think. What do you think? You know, I think there are moments. It's interesting as you're in the rehearsal process and you hear our music director, who is also the the co-executive director, Daniel Thomas, who's so phenomenal on the piano. You hear us working out things in the rehearsal studio and you just, you catch glimpses and you go, God, I know that. And I know where have I heard that in other Sondheim works. I think it's so exciting to be working on this piece in particular because you get those little glimpses of what Sondheim calls his baby pictures. And you can hear the fledgling Sondheim, and then you see the next sort of pieces that we get to know of him, and it's 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 a, an exciting thing to be a part of. With the exception of Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, every show after that from anyone can whistle up through probably the Bunuel show that he's been working on for the past few years. Uh, they all have these tidbits of songs stuck within dialogue mm-hmm. in a way that's uniquely Sondheim, but of course has been imitated by several other people. Mm-hmm. Is that at all in Saturday Night? Oh, I think so. Yeah, it may not be as fully fleshed out as you see in other pieces, but it's definitely there. You see Sondheim in this work tremendously. That said, also reading all that I've read about Sondheim's own view on this piece in particular, you can see the moments in which, if he could go back and look at it again, the things that he would change, the things that frustrate him, the things that he'd do differently, the anachronisms that he had put in some of the lyrics, which you can see in the book that he wrote. But those are small commentaries on a piece that I think is really overall quite a charming piece of musical theater. When you talk about some of the things that he might have done if he had chosen to go back to it, which he never did. Right. What were they? There were 
moments lyrically that he would have changed that he felt were incredibly clever at the time but were anachronistic because he'd put references in there for film figures that weren't really figures at the time that were close to the era. Uh, A lot of this he articulates in, in his book where he breaks all the shows apart and talks about his process writing them. But I, I have to say that I'm, I'm incredibly struck by the Sondheim's comment about the piece overall, because when it finally had its production and he had an opportunity to see it, he was asked what he felt about it. And I just have to read this quote to you because I think it's incredible. He said, I don't have any emotional reaction to Saturday Night at all except fondness. It's not bad stuff for a 23-year-old. There are some things that embarrass me so much in the lyrics, the missed accents, the obvious jokes. But I decided, leave it. It's my baby pictures. You don't touch up a baby picture. You're a baby. In the books that he wrote, he focuses a lot on the difference between a rhyme and an almost rhyme Mm -hmm. and really puts down the almost rhyme. Mm -hmm. In Saturday Night, are they all rhyme or are there some of those moments that he would go, oh, no. I'm sure there are. I have to say in a musical where he rhymes Renoir with Penoir, it's pretty fantastic to me. So let's go back to this particular show. What is the setup? How does the show begin? It's 1929, prior to the stock market crash. It's a group of friends, all of whom live at the home of Gene Gorman, who is our lead character, Eugene Gorman. And it's the gang really lamenting their desire to have dates on a Saturday night, which they don't, except for one, Bobby, who tends to have no issues getting a date. It starts with that, and that leads us to meeting Gene and finding out that he is in coattails and top hat on his way to crash the cotillion party to try to to hobnob. We find out that he's now working in the stock market industry and Wall Street in a very, very, very low position as a runner and has found out some information that he thinks is going to be the key to his way out of Flatbush, his way out of Brooklyn. Uh, and encounters another woman who is doing exactly the same. We meet her as Helen, later to find out that she is Helen. They try to get into this party together. Since this was written by a couple of lefties in the original play, there's got to be some political end to it in terms of the economics of the play. What's there? Well, it's interesting, and I was thinking back to your question earlier where you asked if they were a part of the process with the musical, and I, I, if memory serves, I think that uh, Julius, or Phil, I might have been Philip, passed away in 52. Right. So if they were, they were a part of very early iterations. It's unlike other Sondheim. It isn't. It doesn't even go as far as the stock market crash, which is interesting. And it doesn't go as with, I was reading an article by Charles Isherwood about the piece, and he was saying how in other Sondheim pieces, like with Gypsy Rose Lee, she you know, has to confront everything and doesn't ultimately change. We see her as the, the steadfast character that we are introduced to in the beginning of the musical. Gene, at the end of this musical, sort of discovers the air in his ways through his relationship with Helen and, and how she sort of brings him to realize that there are so many more important things in the world than just being rich and famous. And he comes to terms with that almost happily. And there is a resolution at the end, which to me is maybe the thing that is most unlike Sondheim. There isn't a political statement. This feels to me like, and not to say that Sondheim is political in his musicals, but that it is a completely traditional, classical American musical that ends wrapped up in a pretty little bow and everyone leaves happy and ends happy ever after. At the same time, there were shows like Bloomer Girl from that same era and even certainly Rodgers and Hammerstein that in their reinvention more recently 
particularly King and I, but even South Pacific, a lot of the political elements were brought to the surface so that you could see that there was a lot more going on. In that sense, this is more of a trifle then? I don't, I don't know that I would use that term. I think what's interesting is doing this musical today. There are a lot of really phenomenal parallels, given that we see the 1% getting more and more wealthy by the day and with uh, you know the passing of certain tax uh, amendments. And we're seeing a time now where we're similar to where we were in 1929, where people, especially living here in the Bay Area and seeing San Francisco grow rapidly with each passing day, that there's such a strong desire to want to be a part of that, to want to be a part of something grander than many of us have access to. So it's an interesting parallel, and I think that that people will be able to draw that political parallel by going to see the show, but I don't think that was the intention of the piece. It was really, to me, I would say the piece is more about self-discovery than anything else, and I actually draw the parallel to Sondheim's comparison to this piece being his baby pictures and saying that, you know, you don't touch a baby picture, you're a baby. And I think that many of the characters discover that who you are inherently as a human being is more important than anything else. Beyond those two songs I mentioned, is there any song that would have been successful as a hit, do you think, had the show hit Broadway? This isn't always the case with Sondheim. You don't generally, and this is a huge generalization, I'm sure that I'll be uh, yelled at later by many of my friends. I don't generally equate Sondheim with the type of composer that you leave sort of seeing the songs after you've been at the show. I actually think that there are quite a few songs in this piece for which that, that is the case. I think Class is a great song. I think many of the songs that Helen gets in this piece are quite good. I know for myself that as, as I'm leaving rehearsal, I'm certainly singing a lot of the group numbers, the more upbeat group numbers. Normally on Broadway, a show will go through iterations before it hits Broadway. Right. Because this show never got that far, right. we're dealing kind of with what would have been the world premiere production. Absolutely. So there are things in the show that would have changed, I Certainly. would assume, before it hit Broadway. Certainly. Of course, you would have out-of-town tryouts, and you'd have a preview process with audiences that gave you the opportunity to make amendments as you went prior to your opening night, at which point the show becomes frozen. Certainly. Uh, and that's why I think it's such a unique opportunity to see this piece in particular, because you're getting to see a show by who I would say is the greatest composer of the 20th century, in my opinion, in an untouched version prior to all of that, without having an audience and getting the opportunity to, to play against the audience and see what works and what doesn't. You're getting, in many ways, an incredibly authentic version of Sondheim, because there wasn't anyone else around to say, don't do that, change that, that isn't working. Two songs were added uh, for the Chicago production. And those were written later? Well, interestingly, the delighted, I'm sure, the copyright on that was 1954, but the full added song was Montana Kemp with arrangements by Jonathan Tunick. So there was an added song there. And not knowing what that process was, you know, it may have just been a request to add a song or two songs. I don't know what that collaborative process was that brought about those two particular pieces, but it has changed. And the Montana Kemp song in particular really delves further into the state of the stock market, what we were on the precipice of at the time in which this musical was set. You did dramaturgical research for the Bay Area musical production of Assassins, is that correct? Correct. What exactly did that entail? I should back up and say that when I moved to New York, the first job I had was working for Roundabout Theater Company. I was working in the education department. And I asked at the time if it would be okay for me to reach out to 
the directors who were on their roster and just say that I was an aspiring director and wondered if they'd get together and have, have coffee with me. And one of the people who responded to my letters was Joe Mantello. He was gracious and, and met a very young, naive, ignorant director, me, to just talk about the process. And, and it was around that time that I was doing other things in the industry. I was assistant directing the public theater production of Larry Kramer's Normal Heart. And he said that it was sort of happening at the same time, actually, as, as their rehearsal process. And he had said that he wanted some help doing some some dramaturgical research, in particular on Sam Bick or Sam Bike for the production of Assassins. So I did that for him. And the wonderful thing that came of that was being able to be in the room for the table read of Assassins with the Broadway cast and to have the opportunity to actually meet Sondheim for the first time, which was quite phenomenal. That was a really great production, that New York production. Agreed. And actually, I really liked the production out here as well. I thought it was terrific. Samuel Bike, he was the one, the Nixon guy, right? Correct. So what research did you find out on that, and how did that relate to the production? We were trying to determine the actual pronunciation of his name, interestingly, because in the musical, it's generally Bick, but he actually pronounced his name as Bike, and that information I gave to him through finding a recording and uh, what they did with that information from there, I don't know. But that's what was asked of me, and I found the answer. In the San Francisco production, did you make sure that it was Bike? We did go with Bike for the San Francisco production. For that, I was the uh, primarily the stage manager, the associate director, and also the lighting designer, if you're referring to the Barry yep. Musicals production directed by Darren Carollo. How was working in that particular theater? Fantastic. Okay. The Alcazar Theater? Absolutely. Wonderful experience. Love that space. Love the company, Barry Musicals. Uh, Matthew McCoy, who is the artistic director and founder of that company. Great experience. Great opportunity to really do that piece the way, in my view, it should be done. Nothing against the Broadway production. It was equally phenomenal, but it was nice to see a production out here with Darren A.C. Carollo to create what I think is one of the best iterations of that musical. As the lighting designer, what exactly are you doing in a show like Saturday Night, and what specifically did you do in Assassins? Well, I should preface this by saying that I am not a lighting designer. I have done lighting design in my life. I've done it for a lot of my own productions, but I, I wouldn't equate myself with people who have spent their, who have dedicated their lives to being lighting designers. I see a show. I, I tend to have a vision for that show in terms of light. I've always been fascinated by light uh, in theater, and, and I was fortunate in my theatrical training to have gotten uh, a great deal of experience where lighting is concerned. I really just do what I can to support the direction as best I can, and, and I tend to really appreciate saturated color on stage, and I think that tends to be a consistent theme with the kind of work that I do as a lighting designer. Saturday Night will be different. It doesn't strike me as the, the kind of saturated color musical that I would use for something like Assassins, which was much harsher than I would approach with Saturday Night. This is going to be sort of more muted warm and cool colors. I mean, the moonlight is something that is referred to over and over, and I just see this sort of blue sky and, and warm moon. And Brian Watson, who is our set designer, has done a phenomenal job making this piece fit, which there are quite a few locations for this musical, and he's figured out a brilliant way for us to go to all of those locations relatively easily. But everything is set in Brooklyn, in Flatbush, and we get to see the sort of sepia, grayish tone of Brooklyn and what's behind all of them, including we do have a span of the Brooklyn Bridge on stage. It's the centerpiece of the set. 
But what's behind it is the New York skyline. And it's sort of perfectly appropriate for the piece because everyone seems to be in this space in Brooklyn wishing for a way out and and looking at Manhattan as the, the their dream destination. So we get to have it on stage. That's what's in the distance. It's, it's always ever-present as they're going through the piece. Is there much choreography? Because, of course, later Sondheim, there's very little choreography. We do. We do have a, a phenomenal choreographer, Alison Padaiso Silicani. She's, uh, I've worked on two shows. This is our second show together. Actually, third. The last full-length musical we did together was in the Heights at Contra Costa Civic Theater. There's some beautiful pas de deux and Fred and Ginger moments in this musical and also just some great opportunities for choreography as the the inhabitants of this place in Brooklyn discover the beauty of where they are and where they live and how they don't need anything else. So there's some there are some really lovely choreographic opportunities in this that she has handled quite beautifully. We've been talking about assassins. I want to go back to that <laughs> sure. for a moment because it's, um, I think, 1990, I believe it was. The first production? Yeah. The first New York production. Yeah. It sounds about right, 1991. In seeing it at Bay Area musicals, it struck me since it is really about gun violence, that it had almost more of a kick now in recent years than it might have even had then when the focus was more on... It's a show about the assassins of presidents, Mm -hmm. which is a very odd thing to have as a show, but it seemed more about gun violence and the results of gun violence. Was that your take a little bit? You know, I think you'd have to ask audiences. I'm sure that, that everyone had a different take. It wasn't much what was discussed in our rehearsal process. I feel like the greater connection at the time was more about our our presidency. It seemed to be the... Well, it was what, right about the time that right. Trump came in. Yeah. Right. And so that, I think that that's what people were connecting with more than they were on a gun violence level. We hadn't had any of, the, the, of those unfortunate moments that would have brought that to light within the span of that process. But certainly it's there. Of course, it's there. One of the elements of Sondheim, and in that show, it's the song Something Just Broke, which Mm -hmm. was written for a later version. It wasn't in the original. Correct. Using lots of harmony, particularly in, obviously, Sunday in the Park. Is there any of that in Saturday Night? I would say yes. I think that everything that we know to be true of Sondheim is there in this piece. It's just the early version of it. It's the fledgling version of it. Brian Weibel, let's go back a little bit. Where were you from and how did you get involved in theater? Well, I was born and raised in Walnut Creek, California, and I discovered theater as a young person, probably much to the chagrin of my parents, who I'm sure wished that I had pursued just about anything else. But unfortunately, my father took me to a production of Cats in San Francisco, a touring production, when I was 10, and I think that's probably the thing that gave me the bug forever. So I pursued it through school, went to community college, Diablo Valley College, where I'm currently adjunct faculty, transferred to San Diego State, studied theater there, and really sort of fell in love with directing in the process. And it it came to be that I was asked to direct a musical. After school, after undergraduate, I moved to New York for several years and was asked to come back and direct a musical, which was Thoroughly Modern Millie for Diablo Theater Company. At the time, it was Diablo Light Opera Company in Walnut Creek. And that was successful, both critically and there were awards as well. And I think from that moment, I've been known as the musical theater director. And so the the shows that I tend to get asked to direct are musical theater productions, even though that's not all that I do. But also, I think getting to work in New York and 
having some of the opportunities I had. I was the script supervisor for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels on Broadway, so to get to be a part of that process was also incredibly fantastic. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you get involved? How did you get, And I guess you went from there to Roundabout. How did you get involved? Well, so Roundabout was first, and then when I was working on the production of Normal Heart at the Public Theater, um, Joanna Gleason, who was in that production, asked me when she was coming back to do Dirty Rotten Scoundrels if I would be her personal assistant. That ended up being the foot in the door, as it was for me, because then as she was working on that on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, they were in need for a script supervisor and an assistant to the librettist, Jeffrey Lane. So I came into the project that way, and it was, it was incredibly eye-opening to be a part, even in a small way, even though script supervisor is a, is a huge and terrifying job, to be a part of Broadway in some capacity was an incredible experience. And I think that 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 probably has shaped a lot of who I am as an artist. When you were at the public, did you have any contact with Larry Kramer? Did. Worked very closely with Larry Kramer in the process. Absolutely. And? (laughs) And Larry Kramer is Larry Kramer. Everybody knows who Larry Kramer is. Anyone who knows that name knows that he is an intense human being. But it was an incredible honor to work with someone who has done so much for the gay community and for AIDS research. So I completely understand how Larry Kramer became Larry Kramer. One of the extraordinary things about that production of Normal Heart, and it produced several productions, including multiple ones here in the Bay Area came out of it, was that a show that people thought would be irrelevant became very relevant. Mm -hmm. When you walked into it, Did you have any thoughts one way or the other, and what did you see? I wasn't terribly familiar with the piece when I was first asked to do it, uh, to be a part of that process, and quickly uh, learned just about everything I could about the piece and about the historical context of that piece. And uh, it it was an incredibly, incredibly moving and life-altering experience to be in the room, in particular to be in the room with Larry Kramer as this piece was being done. I learned a lot about the value uh, of theater and the the great potential that theater has to elicit incredible change and to affect and influence an audience. It was something that's incredibly important to me as an artist in general. You mentioned that people come to you and say, hey, you want to do a musical, but it sounds like you certainly want to go way past just doing musical. I'm here. I'm here to direct what I can. I love theater. We are incredibly blessed in the Bay Area to have a great number of phenomenal theater companies, uh, phenomenal artists, performers and designers and artistic directors and executive directors. And it's just really an honor to be a member of this community. And, you know, it's one of those things that when the call comes, I'll serve. I'm I'm here to serve theater in the best way I can. Do you have any other connection with 42nd Street Moon? Aside from the lighting design that I've done and am doing for this piece, I also do work with their Moon School program, which is their summer camp for young people. And uh, we'll be directing, I will be directing their summer show for middle and high school students this summer, which will be the musical 13. So uh, that'll be an interesting experience this summer, which I look forward to very much. Well, I noticed the rest of the season at 42nd Street Moon, Me and My Girl, which I guess is a full production. Correct. Pardon My English, which was a Gershwin flop, which was playing for two days, May 14th to 15th, maybe the single most obscure Gershwin show. (laughs) (laughs) And they just announced next season as well. Best Little Whorehouse in Texas is part of the season. Fiorello next year. They're also doing the musical Once. 
which is a bit out of the standard for 40 seconds to remove, but an exciting step. They're also doing 110 in the shade, and I know that I'm forgetting one other musical, but uh, that is, that's four of their five. For Nick. These are the full-bodied musicals. Correct. In a sense, with that and Bay Area musicals, there's now two theater companies that are just doing musicals in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Correct. How's working at the Gateway? I love the space. It's incredibly intimate, and I'm excited for what uh, 42nd Street Moon has in store for that space because some renovations are coming into that space, and what seems to be the one complaint everyone has is about chairs, although I think they're lovely. Uh, I know that's one of the things that they're getting, have gotten, which they've announced, and it's exciting, but it's... It feels, I would say that my favorite thing working in the gateway is that it feels like it it is a part of San Francisco musical theater history. San Francisco history as well. You just walk in the room and you know that you're in a space that has been inhabited by people for a long time doing incredible work. Is Saturday night going to be amplified? No, that remains. That will, I think, remain for quite a while. That for 40 Seconds to Moon shows, there is no amplification. And it's just piano? We have three musicians doubling several pieces, so not just piano. That is one thing that has changed. And the uh, the arrangements, are they your arrangements, or are they coming in from... All part of the, the package you get when you, when you reserve the right to do a musical through Music Theater International. Ryan Weibel, now you've got this show coming up. Saturday night. What else you have? What's in the works for you after that? You have anything? Thirteen is next. That is the the summer musical, and uh, next year I will be directing a play for Contra Costa College. It's also within the same district, and other things in the work that I can't announce just at this point, but certainly things coming down the pike. You've been listening to an interview with Ryan Weibel who is the director of Stephen Sondheim's Saturday Night at 42nd Street Moon, which is the Gateway Theater, formerly the Eureka Theater, down near the Embarcadero, March 28th to April 15th. For more information, you can go to their website, 42ndstmoon.org.